Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 131, The April Uprising. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. Big thanks to Simeon Flora for increasing his pledge and to new patrons Tsveta Panayotova and Andrei Militaru, as well as donations from Stoyan Bozhinov, Anna Gancheva, and Teresa Howell. Huge thank you to all of you. It really makes a big difference. And, well, let's get into it. Now, first I had to mention real quick, I am, you know, freshly vaccinated and very excited to get into this tragic and heroic period of Bulgarian history. Um, but just to mention, I got vaccinated because that's why this episode is a little late because I was kind of getting some side effects for four or five days and uh, that postponed everything. But this and the next episode will be out in the next day or two before the end of February. And well, quick note, there will be probably, I think, some missed, some incorrect dates here. I thought I was using the modern dates because the sources I'm using give the modern and the dates from the old calendar. I kind of got them mixed up on a few of these. So uh, sadly, I realized this only after days and days of work and I didn't have time to rewrite everything. But so sometimes the actual day is like two weeks later in the calendar, but you know, it doesn't substantially change the story I'm telling. So it's just going to be left in there. Now getting into it. Last time, we saw Bosnia and Herzegovina break out into open revolt against the Ottomans, leading Austria-Hungary to eye the territory as a route for potential expansion, while Serbia fights with itself over whether to intervene. Back with the BRCC, we saw the rise of a young Stefan Stambolov to prominence within the organization, as Karavelov essentially retired. Under Stambolov's leadership, the BRCC engaged in the Starozagora uprising, which was quickly crushed and received no aid from any foreign states. As a result, Christobotev, who had participated or kind of bolstered it as an idea, also left the BRCC. Now, a new, smaller revolutionary committee has been formed with the intention of launching another uprising in spring 1876. Meanwhile, the Ottoman itself the Ottoman Empire itself, defaulted on its debt as internal struggles between reformers and hardliners continued. And that's where we pick up today. With the dawning of the year 1876, the uprisings in Bosnia and Herzegovina are still simmering, but definitely, you know, lower than they were. Serbia under Prince Milan is still refusing to get involved despite heavy internal pressure, and the Georgiou Revolutionary Committee is working tirelessly to learn from the mistakes of the Starozagora uprising to rise up again before the opportunity fades. Now, in January and February, the leaders of the upcoming uprising got into positions, with Stambolov and Karaminkov risking their lives by walking across the frozen Danube to avoid the possibility of being captured by Ottoman authorities who were looking for them. Perry tells a kind of funny story about their travels towards Turnival, in which they gave the coachman some rakia to encourage him to go faster, but instead he just got blackout drunk, and as a result, Stumbleoff had to drive the coach, which he was not very good at doing, and you know, it's not his job, and so it took them much, much longer than expected to reach their destination. Yeah, amusing little anecdote, but 
What's important is that they did evade a police check and managed to get dropped off at a monastery outside of town so they could then sneak in during the night. Now, they ultimately established their headquarters just north of Tornovo in the city of Gorna Oryakovica and, well, got to work. After all, they had less than three months before the uprising was scheduled to begin. Another committee member traveled to Belgrade to seek Serbian support, while the Serbs, they seemed to look on the whole endeavor favorably, but they would not commit to helping the Bulgarians unless the Russians also committed. So for now, there's a possibility of foreign support, but unlikely. Now, for a little more context there, Serbia, well, in Serbia, pressure was mounting to intervene in the uprising in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Montenegro had made it very clear to the Serbs that they were ready for war. But again, that pressure from Prince Milan was still strongly against it. Now, Milan himself was really looking to Russia for guidance, as his you know, statements of the BRCC members make clear. And so basically, he was going to follow Russia's lead. But from Russia, he was receiving some mixed signals. Officially, Russian policy was in line with the Three Emperors League. In other words, preserve the status quo. However, there were pan-Slavic advocates within Russia who saw this as a vital opportunity to expand its influence in the Balkans. Now, in January, the Plovdiv Revolutionary Committee was formed in Koprivchica, headed by the seasoned Cheta leader Panayot Volov, with the participants swearing the following oath on a Bible, knife, and a revolver, which is a kind of enduring symbol of the April uprising. They swore, quote, I swear in the name of Almighty God that for the glory of my people and for the honor of the Orthodox faith, I will stab the 500-year-old rusty Bulgarian knife into the chest of the Turkish Sultan. If I break my oath, let me be cursed by the whole Bulgarian people and may the heaviest punishment of God befall me. End quote. So we've heard kind of uh, quotes like this before for the revolutionaries, but this one's a bit more flowery and interesting. But you can tell the, the seriousness with which these men took what they were about to do. Now, during these months, Hristo Boltev was attempting to participate in some capacity, despite having resigned from the BRCC and being excluded from the new Georgiou committee planning the April uprising. So he traveled to Belgrade and then to Odessa searching for volunteers. He also wrote a letter to Totopeyev in Braila about the uprising and his intentions, and possibly as a result, immigrant activists in Braila began calling for an assembly in March to discuss the prospect of the uprising. Ultimately, though, Botev, Nikolai Obrenitov, and Georgi Apostolov worked together on preparing a cheta which would enter Bulgaria on the day the uprising was to begin. But time was still fast running out. Only a month before the uprising was to begin, well, we'll get to when it begins later, many of the leading men of the first revolutionary district finally crossed the Danube into Bulgaria. Botev's preparations began less than two weeks before its beginning. Men were working to stockpile weapons and even famously created small cannons out of the stumps of cherry trees, which would shoot out small pieces of metal like balancing weights from commercial scales. Today, you can find reproductions of such cannons as a symbol of the uprising throughout Bulgaria, particularly in front of Mechanaz. So if you ever visit Bulgaria, you go to a traditional restaurant, there's a good chance you'll see some of these little wooden cannons. And if you're wondering what that's about, now you know. Now, on April 14th, the apostles of the 4th Revolutionary District, based in Plovdiv, headed by Todor Kableshkov, 
organized a meeting in the Oborishte region near Panagyurishte. 64 regular representatives of the committee, along with perhaps another 100 attendees, the exact numbers are disputed, were at the meeting and voted on a plan for future actions and authorized the apostles to decide on a final date of the uprising. Three days later, the head military council selected at the Oborishte meeting held a meeting and decided that the revolt would be proclaimed on the 1st of May. However, Unbeknownst to those attending the Oborste meeting, one attendee named Nenko Terziski betrayed everything he knew at the meeting to the Ottoman official Ali Bey, based in Pazarjik, in exchange for 200 silver coins. As a result, on April 19th, police arrived in Koprivchitsa to arrest Todor Kableshkov. They didn't find him initially, but arrested others. Kableshkov was actually sick at home, but his mother convinced the police that he wasn't there. And for some reason, they didn't go in to check. However, despite much knowledge, how much knowledge the Ottomans now had about the planned uprising, they really still were underestimating the scale, and so this was about the only police action taken at this moment. But despite this, Kableshkov had no way of knowing that the Ottomans kind of weren't acting on a large scale, and was deeply concerned that the police would destroy the entire operation. So, he made the fateful decision that the uprising should begin immediately, 10 days before it planned, cutting the already extremely tight preparation schedule even tighter. By this moment, only two of the six revolutionary districts, those based in Turnovo and Plovdiv, had made serious preparations, and the endeavor really failed to secure any external support whatsoever. But despite these realities, at 10 a.m. on April the 20th, 1876, the uprising began in Koprivchitsa. Two groups of rebels gathered to assault the local Konak, which is a kind of Ottoman administrative building. Early on, one attachment met an Ottoman soldier at a small bridge and shot him, effectively beginning the uprising. Now, I recently visited this bridge and will include some photos on the website. Now, soon after the Konak was taken, although the local police chief who had been searching for Kableshkov and many soldiers managed to escape, one of those famous cherry cannons was used for the first time, but sadly, it immediately exploded and killed the man operating it. Ultimately, the whole cherry cannon thing was a bit of a bust, and they really didn't work. Now, after the Konak was taken, Kableshkov penned a well, a letter that's been known to history as the Bloody Letter, because it was written... I think he said in the blood of uh, Ottomans that they had killed. And he wrote, Brothers, yesterday I arrived in the village of Nejipaga in Plovdiv, who wanted to imprison several people with me. When I was aware of your decision made at the Oborishki assembly, I called several heroes, and after we armed ourselves, we went to the Konak, which we attacked and killed and murdered several Zaptis. Now when I write this letter to you, the flag is waving in front of the Konak, the rifles thunder, accompanied by the echo of the church bells, and the heroes kiss each other in the streets. If you brothers were true patriots and apostles of freedom, then follow our example in Panagyurishte. Written in Koprishita on April the 20th, 1876. Now again, his signature was followed by a cross painted in blood. Now copies of the letter were rushed to nearby Panagyurishte by a man named Nikola Salchev, who wrote, his, who rode his horse so hard that the horse died trying to get that urgent message. But he still got there incredibly quickly. The generally five-hour trip 
was done in two hours, and by 4 p.m., Paniotvolov and Panagyurishte proclaimed the uprising there. Thus, at the end of the first day, the uprising was limited to just Koprichitsa and Panagyurishte, but word was traveling fast. But the Ottomans were also acting quickly. Mass arrests began immediately, as well as the mobilization of Ottoman irregular troops, the so-called Bashibuzuk. Now, I'll talk about them a bit in more in a minute, but after the first day, Right, the uprising was still limited, and this is kind of a region around the Srinagora Mountains. You can find a map on the website linked in the episode description. Frankly, I highly recommend you look at that map because even for me, it's, it's kind of confusing and difficult to really cover all the details of the April uprising, and there's a lot of places and things, and you really should be looking at that map to get an idea of what's going on and where it's happening. Now, the next day, Vasil Petleshkov arrived in Bratsikovo, at the foothills of the Rudopi Mountains near Plovdiv, and after an emergency meeting of the local committee, he proclaimed the uprising there. This opened a second region of active resistance, although all this was still within the 4th Revolutionary District. Back up in the 1st Revolutionary District, the one based around Tornovo and most of central Bulgaria, the Ottomans were now able to take preventative measures before the uprising had even been proclaimed there. But the insurgents were also making progress. Georgi Benkovsky formed a cavalry group called the Flying Detachment because it was so fast and appeared to be everywhere working to support the uprising. Around 50 people, including some foreigners, joined it right away, and it began operations around Panagyurishte. Over the next two days, the rebellion expanded in these same areas, Srednogora and the Rudopi foothills. On the 23rd, the Flying Detachment fought a successful battle against Ottoman irregular soldiers in the Srednogora before moving south towards the other center of active resistance around the Rudopi. Around five days into the uprising, the Ottoman irregulars began more concentrated attacks on the towns and villages which had participated. And that's where things stood five days into the fighting, when committee members in the 1st Revolutionary District met at Gorna and decided to finally join the uprising in three days. Thus, the Ottomans would ultimately have more than a week to prepare for activities there, and during that time, the 4th Revolutionary District would be alone in its resistance. The uprising by this point was already paying dearly for being launched prematurely. But the 4th Revolutionary District was still finding some success. On the 26th, they won a victory against Ottoman troops in the Srednogora. That same day, the Ottoman Tusonbe led an attack on the nearby village of Klisura as well. There, Ottoman artillery overwhelmed local defenses and Ottoman irregulars poured into the village, massacring its population. Also on the 26th, though, some activity was beginning in the first revolutionary district, as a priest named Hariton in a village near Tornovo gathered local activists and prepared to rise up. But time was fast running out there. As the next day, the Ottomans began arresting revolutionaries in Gorna one day before they planned to join the uprising. But the next day, activity did begin on schedule. The priest Hariton formed the Cheta of about 200 men and began moving to Gabrovo, stopping to rest at the Daryanovo Monastery. Down south in the Rodopi foothills, Ottoman irregulars attacked rebels but suffered losses and withdrew. Now, Eight days into the uprising, it's beginning to spread and some victories are being won against Ottoman forces. But opposition is mounting, even from local Chorbaji, local notables. 
The next day, the Chorbogy of Koprivchitsa attempted to organize an arrest of local revolutionary leaders, but aid arrived and helped destroy the conspiracy. To the south, rebels fighting in the Rodopi foothills were now largely on the defensive as Ottoman strength grew there. To the north, the very first Cheta of the first revolutionary district was surrounded by Ottoman forces in the monastery and began desperately fighting to escape. One gets the feeling that it was on this day, April 29th, that things began to take a turn. The uprising was by this point limited to two regions and a single monastery, and the rebels were shifting to the defense everywhere. This was a dangerous position because time was undoubtedly on the side of the Ottomans, as it allowed them to gather more strength. While the longer the uprising dragged on, the further the rebels' resources would be strained without much prospect for outside aid. On April the 30th, Panagyurishte, the second town to rise against the Ottomans, fell. Ottoman irregular soldiers plundered and murdered at will. Here, it's worth taking a moment to explain who these irregulars were. Again, referred to as Bashibuzuk, meaning something like leaderless or disorderly, they were mostly Albanian and Circassian men recruited basically when needed. They were not paid by the Ottomans and had no uniforms. In other words, their only motivation and payment was plunder. This meant that they were known for brutality, plunder, murder, rape, and frankly, all these things were built-in features to how they operated. From the Ottoman perspective, though, they were extremely fast to mobilize. They were basically already living in the region, and they cost the treasury nothing. And their brutality was certainly a deterrent to would-be rebels. Now, unfortunately for the men of the April Uprising, tens of thousands of irregular soldiers were already stationed in Bulgaria because it was being used as a base of operations against the Bosnian rebels. Thus, the Bulgarian rebels were now quickly being overrun and outnumbered. Now, that same day, Panagirishte fell, 2,100 irregulars surrounded and attacked Pratsikovo in the Rdopi region as yet more attacks began to mount on the nearby village of Batak. The other nearby village of Perushitsa was also engaged in bloody fighting as the rebels gathered in the local church where the fighters reportedly killed their own wives and children to spare them from the terrible retribution that was to come. Meanwhile, to the north, revolutionaries in Gabrovo met and decided to join the rebellion the next day, again a full 10 days after the uprising had begun. The day after, 219 men gathered at the Sokol Monastery near Gabrovo to form a new cheta headed by Tsanko Dustabanov. The uprising was also announced in Krovenik and Sevlievo. In Yambol, locals attempted to begin the uprising there, but local authorities successfully prevented them from carrying this out. So on May the 1st, the uprising was undoubtedly spreading, but it was also faltering elsewhere. An Ottoman force of 5,000 surrounded Koprivcica, where local notables gathered a bribe and turned over the rebels. The rebel position on nearby Mount Elegik in the Srednogora was attacked on three sides, and the surviving rebels forced to retreat. Heavy defensive fighting was carried out at Batak and Perushtica in the Rdopi region. Both villages were ultimately pillaged and the populations murdered and tortured. I'll talk in more detail about the Batak massacre in the next episode because it's Way too much to get into, we won't have time on this one. In the Dianovo Monastery, the priest Hariton and his cheta were fighting desperately. Hariton was injured and the fighting raged. Up in Bucharest, Christo Botev 
decided to accelerate his plan to cross the Danube with his own Cheta, setting May 5th as the target date, although he would fail to move that quickly. Two days later, on May the 3rd, the Gabrovo Cheta arrived in the area of Sivlievo, arming the locals and spreading the uprising to the surrounding villages. In Slieben, Ilarion Dragostinov and Georgi Obritenov announced the beginning of the uprising and formed a small cheta, which would begin a journey over the Balkan mountains to the camp of a man named Stoil Vovida. The next day, rebels in the region of Novoselo, led by Yanko Karagyosov, entered a difficult fight with Ottoman irregulars. This was in the kind of Balkan mountain region of Gabrovo. The day after, the Cheta of Tsanko Dustibanov arrived in the area as well. Nearby, in Triavna, the local revolutionary committee announced the uprising and formed a small Cheta under the leadership of Todor Kirkov, Christopatrev, and Stanyo Gulev, further expanding the uprising in the first revolutionary district of central Bulgaria. However, the day also saw the Ottoman Ar- Ottomans bring artillery to bear on the nearby Dianovo Monastery, with the Cheta of the priest Hariton still trapped inside setting it ablaze. Back south in the Rutopi foothills, May the 5th saw the village of Bratigovo surrounded by 18,000 Ottomans as the situation in that region further deteriorated. A day later, notables from that village sent a messenger to the Ottomans, Hassan Pasha, their leader, and offered that in exchange for a substantial bribe, the village would be spared from destruction. The revolutionary Vasil Petleshkov was handed over to the Ottomans and tortured before swallowing poison. The Ottomans also took the village of Batoshevo in the first district on that day. On the 7th of May, the surviving members of Hariton's Cheta in the Dianovo Monastery made one final attempt to break out during a terrible thunderstorm following nine days of brutal siege. Only 47 of the original 200 or so, including, including Bachukiro, managed to escape and survive. But on this day also, the 2nd Revolutionary District finally saw some activity after a failed attempt to raise a cheta in Yambul the week previously. A cheta gathered around Slieven under Stoyal Vovda and were sworn in to begin the fight. Now, outside of any of the districts, there was some activity in Macedonia near Blagovgrad, but in the modern-day country of North Macedonia. Now, this was distinct from the BRCC. They had not participated in this. But Bulgarian activists in Thessaloniki in an organization called Bulgarian Dawn led a movement there. And these activists formed a 60-man cheta under Dmitry Popgeorgiev. But on the 7th, local officials and police entered the town in an attempt to arrest the cheta members there. So now, 17 days after its start, the uprising had spread to roughly five distinct areas. To recap, the uprising in Macedonia had just begun. The uprising in the foothills of the Rodopi had essentially put, been put down with terrible violence. The uprising around Slieven had just begun. The original region around Koprivtica and Panagiriste had largely been put down with the remnants of Kobleshkov's Cheta, which had started the uprising having fled into the mountains where Kobleshkov was captured. In the central region around Gabrovo and Troyan, we have seen the Cheta based in the Dianovo Monastery been largely destroyed, although fighting there still rages. In theory, more Chetas are still to come from north of the Danube, and the revolutionaries still hope that foreign aid might arrive. On May 8th, the Cheta in Macedonia gathered strength and stormed a local government building, burning the tax register. 
Local women and children were hidden in a mountain camp which was built beforehand. The Cheta of Stoyelvovoda in the Sleban region gathered more locals to its ranks, and there was vicious fighting between the rebels and Ottomans in Novoselo in the Central Balkan Mountains. Now on the 9th, also in the Central Balkan region, Ottoman forces took over Kervinik. Some rebels managed to retreat into the Balkan Mountains. The next day, the Ottomans finally conquered nearby Novoselo, ending a 10-day battle. On the 10th, the Cheta of Stoyelvovoda finally saw its first action, getting into a difficult battle with regular Ottoman troops. The Voivoda was injured, and members of the Cheta managed to escape and break into small groups. On their way to a mountain pass, Vratnik, the apostle of the Second Revolutionary District, Dragostinov, was killed. The next day, a Cheta headed by Tsyanko Dustibanov in the Central Balkan Mountains began its final battle with Ottoman forces. Nearby, the Cheta of Triavna, headed by Hrito Patrev and Todor Kirkov, fought in the Chukara near Gabrovo. They ultimately retreated before breaking into small groups, which were then easily defeated by Ottoman forces. On the 12th, Georgi Benkowski died ar- around Kostina near Teteven. On the 13th, the badly wounded Stoyevovda, along with Georgi Drajev and other Chetnitsi, were surrounded in the forest and captured. On the way to Sleven, Stoyevovda was decapitated. That same day, Botev arrived in Georgiou to begin preparations to gather Echeta and enter Bulgaria. And that's where I'll end today's rather somber episode. While it's not completely finished, by this point the April uprising is largely over. What remains is what will happen to Botev and really mopping up operations throughout Bulgaria. So next time we'll discuss the final events of the April uprising and the horrific events which occurred in Batak and delve into how those events were covered and what it all means today. After that, we'll get back to essentially what happened in the aftermath of the April uprising and what major events were catalyzed by it. So thank you for listening. Again, this has been a much sadder episode than usual, but I appreciate it and uh, well, I'll catch you in the next one. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. You can check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast, Pause for Now, at bghistorypodcast.com. And there's a subreddit linked in the episode description. And that's it.